unless God does it. God changes names. You're Peter. You know, you're Simon. I'm going to call you Peter because I'm going to turn you into a rock. See, you're just pebbles. Somebody puts a foundation on you, it flops. But on Peter, the rock, it's going to stand. It's a foundation strong. God promised he was going to do that, and he did it. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, your Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. I pray as we consider this very, very important subject of the names of God, prefaced by the work it takes, the intricate work of studying a word and understanding what you mean by what you have said. As we, as we look at that, in kind of an example of, example of a way, um, I pray, dear Lord, that you would open our hearts, open our minds, open our soul and our spirit to be focused and zealous to know the truth. Lord, what could be more important than to know the truth? Whether, whether people care or not, whether we live in a world that is just fine with being deceived, just going along with the crowd. Lord, call those to yourself who make knowing the truth the most important thing because you are the source of the truth. When it comes to you, Lord, no matter what it is we look at, you're the source of it. And when it comes to important, the truth is the most important. Why? Because we can't know what we need to know if we don't know the truth. To know how important love is, we have to know the truth about love. To know the Son of the living God, the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to know the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, make that supreme importance important to us today. I ask it not for our sakes alone, but for your Lord Jesus Christ, your Son's sake. In his name I pray. Amen. Today's episode is episode 43, and it's an introduction to the names of God. And this series will be the Names of God series. This teaching will be at least a two-part study in the name of God, Elohim. In the second part, I will concern my study to the context of Scripture in which the particular name of God is used. In this study... We will look briefly at the, the, same, the name, but concern ourselves primarily with the uh, intricacies of Scripture and how important it is to understand that the casual reader or careless studier should not think that God will be found when a person takes him lightly. God said through the prophet Jeremiah, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. 
Jeremiah 29.13. That is with full effort of mind, emotions, and will. So let's uh, begin this study with an appropriate quote from A.W. Tozer. For a long time, I have believed that for truth to be understood must be believed. That doctrine of the Bible is wholly ineffective until it has been digested and assimilated by the total life. The essence of my belief is that there is a difference, a vast difference, between fact and truth. Truth in the Bible is more than a fact. A fact may be detached, cold, impersonal, and totally disassociated from life. Truth, on the other hand, is warm, living, spiritual. A theological fact may be held in the mind for a lifetime without its having any positive effect upon a person's moral character. The devil is a better theologian than any of us and is a devil still. Truth is creative, saving, transforming, and it always changes the one who receives it into a holier and humbler man. Theological facts are the altar of Elijah on Mount Carmel before the fire of God came correct, properly laid out, but altogether cold. When the heart of makes the ultimate surrender, the fire falls, and true facts are transmuted into spiritual truth that transforms, enlightens, and cleanses. The individual not taught the truth of God by the Spirit of God has simply failed to see that truth lies deeper than the theological statement of it. At what point, then, does a theological fact become for the one who holds it a life-giving truth? At that point where faith and obedience begin. A.W. Tozer. This study then will only benefit you, the hearer, if you receive the truth taught in Holy Scripture, internalize it, and act upon them in the course of your life. Don't learn for knowledge or to accumulate facts, but to know God in Christ and to be obedient to Him. We will look at the Apostle Peter's writing before we begin the study about the names of God as they are written in his holy word. I want us to consider how a student approaches the Bible. I said a student. That is a learner and not someone who considers himself to be the source of knowledge, a scholar, brilliant, but one who humbly submits to another, and in this case, the other is Almighty God, We will then consider how Peter opens his second letter and explains to us what it means to exercise saving faith and how such an exercise affects true knowledge. Get that? We'll consider how Peter opens his second letter, 2 Peter, and explains to us what it means to exercise saving faith and how such exercise affects true knowledge. We need to come to God humbly, as the source of truth. To whom is Peter writing? Well, 
to those who have received a faith in the same kind, of the same kind as ours. That's what he says. He's right. To those who have received a faith is the same kind of ours. Kind, defined in Greek, means held in equal honor. So two people have faith. You know, we on this roller coaster of uh, of religions that were all one. One has faith in Jesus, and another has faith in a monkey to save them. Are those faiths equal? What do you think? Can a can a can an, a monkey save a person from eternal judgment? What's the point of the passage? That is in Second Peter. This is a quick version as I run through this, but I'm, I'm, stick right here with me when I go through this. That uh, there's a main point. That main point is to focus on the word knowledge, and how that knowledge can be transforming in a person's life. How that knowledge can be transforming. Then we're going to make the transition into the name of God Elohim, and how that can be transforming. So verse 2 of his letter, he says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Now the meaning of knowledge in Greek as used in this phrase is epinosis. And quoting you know, a Greek scholar, it's epi, or fitting, which intensifies gnosis. Knowledge gained through first-hand relationship, or properly, contact knowledge that is appropriate, fitting to first-hand experiential knowing. It's experiential knowing. This is defined by the individual context, the Greek scholar says, and quote. The context is, here's the context of Peter's letters, quote, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. The relationship knowledge of which Peter speaks is clearly of God and Jesus our Lord. How do we know that? Well, he says it. Verse 3. For, and this is the quote, His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him. And through is key preposition, through the true knowledge, the epinosis of him. Again, now this is twice its word is used, true knowledge is epinosis. Translators do the best work they can to go from one word to another. And here they're going from knowledge to true knowledge. The original scriptures are written in Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. We know this. And God is capable of taking a translation and making it his word and using it as word, even though it's not a Greek or a Hebrew or an Aramaic term that we are understanding. Some people in our generation are thinking weird things about this. God is God. And God's word is God's word. And God will do with his word, whether it's translated or not, what he will do. And whether it's knowledge or epinosis, God uses the word. If you don't believe that, you're in trouble already. So where does divine power come? From where does divine power come pertaining to life and godliness? 
Well, verse 3 says, His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him. Again, it's the true knowledge is epinosis. By what do people partake of the divine nature and escape corruption? Verse 4. So then by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. By them. What does he mean by that? Having escaped the corruption that is in the world on account of lust. See, this is what I'm trying to focus on here is you just can't fly through the word. Yeah, it has to be meditated. It has to be thought about. It has to be studied. You have to pull the words apart. If you really want to know the meaning behind the passage, if you want to know what the author, Almighty God, is talking about, you have to know syntax, how words relate to one another. They make clauses and phrases and how nouns and verbs relate and on and on. Now, that's a lot of work. And that's why I made those quotes in the beginning. So that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. First, his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. His divine power. But his divine power is through true knowledge of him. Of him. The them in the phrase, so by them is epinosis. Second, granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Precious and magnificent promises must come through epinosis. Partakers of epinosis begin to partake of the one who is the source of truth. They partake of his nature. And that was always the plan. That's always been the plan. It always will be. Because apart from God, we're nothing. Jesus said it. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You are nothing. What kind of knowledge is part of this package of verses from verses 5 to 7? Verses 5 to 7, he goes into these virtues. The virtues are moral excellence, knowledge. And I'm asking what kind of knowledge again? Self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. And I'm focusing on knowledge again because it's through knowledge that we become partakers. Now, for this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence and your moral excellence knowledge. This word is not epinosis, but it's close. It's close to gnosis. It's gnosko or nosko. A feminine noun derived from nosco, experientially know. Functional, working, knowledge gleaned from first-hand personal experience. Connecting theory to application. Application knowledge. Gained in by a direct relationship. Gnosis or applied knowledge. Is only an as accurate, reliable as the relationship it derives from. For example... The Gnostic boasted of their applied knowledge gained by their personal spiritual experiences. It was a disaster. It still is. Gnosticism is literally the cult based on having special personal knowledge. It's experience, but it's, it's 
It's in one's own head. It's in one's own feelings and emotions. It's self-centered. Why? Because in the case of the historical Gnostics, they trusted in themselves, not God. I mean, not the God that they, they believed they could not know. I mean, how do those two go together? False gods are not gods at all. And so men look at religion and some use it as a false safety net and others don't use it at all, but completely trust in themselves. You know, the, the one who calls himself an atheist, I don't believe in God. Or Gnostic, I don't know that there is a God. Same difference. With regards to virtues, it makes the participant delusional. And they really think they're having an experience by which they know something. When apart from the source of all things and the source of knowledge, you can't know anything. And that's God. In the beginning, God created heavens and the earth, and he's created everything since. Your imagination, your conceptional powers, your powers of reason, all of that comes from God. And it's either distorted by sin and its egotism or pride, or it's made great by the author of all things. Why do these qualities make one useful and productive? Verse 8. For if these qualities, those virtues, are yours and are increasing, they do not make you useless or unproductive in the epinosco of our Lord Jesus Christ. For if the qualities are coming from God, if through epinosco, a heightened knowledge through a relationship with God, that turns knowledge into the application. Then it becomes productive and useful. Why? Because you're connected by knowledge to God. That's why there's such an emphasis on the Word of God. And people get, some people, you know, on the, on the more conservative side, there's the conservative side, we'll just use that term, and the emotional side. Well, we can use the mental side and the emotional side. Both are necessary, both are good, when both are controlled by God. And either one, not controlled by God, is bad. That's the way it works. But people want to put em high emphasis, almost to the exclusion of emotion, on the mental. But that's not totally good. It's about experiencing God. It's about knowing God. It's not about mental it's about experiencing, through the mind, God. But God is the central point in which we'll fo we should focus, not on the knowledge itself, alone, as if there were no God, as if there were no relationship. Relationship is everything, because without relationship, you can't get close to the one who's the source of all things, whether it's knowledge or love or kindness or truth or virtue of any kind. So, with this kind of knowledge in context, and as the main point of the passage, let us discover the conclusion of this chapter. Verses 16 to 18, that's what Peter says. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such a declaration as this was made to him by the majestic glory. Quote, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this declaration made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So he's quoting 
of the experience that he had when he was with Jesus on the mountain, when Jesus was shown to him as he will appear when he returns for the second time, which men are going off, say, ah, it's been like this forever, it's never going to change, blah, 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 because they don't want it to change, because they don't want to have to stand before God. And when they do, they're going to run to the cliffs and the mountains and holes in the ground to get away if they don't know God. Because it's a fierce thing. It's a frightful thing to stand before a consuming God who is a consuming fire. Hebrews chapter 10. Fearful thing. At this point, Peter is not speaking from verses 16 to 18 as, as a deceiver, inflated in his own mind as a false prophet. That's, that's not who he is. He is actually one who is receiving the qualities at this point available to him from God who imparts to men virtue and the divine nature. In Peter's case, it was the inspiration to write the Word of God. He's writing it right here. We're reading it. It's the second letter of Peter, and it's in part of the inspired Word. Furthermore, Peter described by the inspiration of God the historical account of which he partook and is recorded in the Gospels. Let's read it. Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 30. Quote, And some eight days after these things, it came about that he, Jesus, took along Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. Luke is writing this. And while he was praying, the appearance of his, Jesus' face, became different. And his clothing became white and gleaming. And while he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. You read about this in, in Revelation. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, and I quote, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. This is the account. It's the word of God in Luke and it's the word of God in 2 Peter and they reconcile with one another perfectly. Just like all the scripture does. When Peter writes his letter, he's, he's recounting a historical event. We now have this second letter of Peter as an eyewitness account of what took place at that time. Now this is about a Bible, a book. That when you go through this book, the Bible, you're reading a book that took over 1,200 years to write. Now for some people, this may be very hard to believe, obviously, because you can't get around 10 people telling the same sentence if they can't hear one another, and they just add or take away, and by the time you get to the 10th person, it doesn't sound like it did in the first place at all. So how could this possibly take place? Well, by miracle. 1,200 years. 40 different authors. Three different languages. Different continents. Different cultures. Different eras. Times. Different people. Different family group. And yet, if you study like I have, at this point, 47 years, 
and you dig in and you dig in and you look at the words and you try to put it all together and make sense and you work and you work and you work and you can't find anything wrong with it. I mean, any person can pick it up and say, it's bogus. I mean, who can get swallowed by a fish and live? That takes really a lot of meditation and understanding. Who can't pick apart the, uh, the Gospels when they don't say the exact same thing? But if you look at witnesses and you look at people who've studied how to pick apart when people give a different accounts of things, like you have a dozen witnesses, and what did they all see? And you see that sometimes they contradict the other side, one another, but sometimes the differences actually make it true. I forget the name of the man. He wrote a book, and he was a detective for 20 years in L.A., and he wrote a wonderful book, and he, he describes all of this science of understanding differences, whether they be contradictory or actually um, you know, lend weight to what the other person is saying. And that's what happens in the gospel. You read and you study them, and you know what? They all lend weight to one another. They don't contradict ever to the student. And so what does Peter say at the end of this? When he talks about the inspired word, he says, verses 19 to 21, quote, and so we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The sun rises. The lamp, which is just a handheld lamp, which you can't see more than your feet so you don't stumble, when the sun rises, you see everything clearly. That's the way the Word of God is. As in Psalms tells us, it's, it's like light sown as a seed. It's planted in the heart, and then by the grace of God through experiences, it's applied, and the lights go on. Because it's the work of God, not some self-work. Verse 20, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture becomes a matter of someone's own interpretation. No one wrote the Bible by his own will, by his own ability. Were men free to do so? They were. I can't bring the two together. But men were men, and they did what they did and what they thought at the time, and it all came together because God was working behind the scenes to bring it all together. And yet, it is God's word. Now, if you can't understand that, or believe it, then you can't believe the main purpose for all of this, which is for God to be in the first place where he belongs, as the one who has always been, and to put man in his place as receiving from God everything he needs, which is everything. And when the two become one, they, they actually then become sons of the living God and they become partakers of the divine nature and there's a unity which makes Christ and his bride one. And so the fulfillment of Ephesians chapter 5 where we understand that marriage is the perfect instrument of explaining the divine purpose which is unity between God and man or the son and his bride. The two shall become one flesh. If one is to read through the prophets, as in the case of Isaiah 53, one will notice that a full description of the things yet to come regarding Jesus is fulfilled in the New Testament accounts. How did this happen? I mean, Luke wrote the, wrote, wrote the Gospel of Luke. He wasn't even a Jew. 
he was and didn't have that background. He didn't have that knowledge. He was a convert to Christianity, to Christ, uh, but he was the author of a gospel. <clears throat> so, what if I tried to parcel together briefly as the accuracy of Scripture down to the words used so that no human instrument could possibly accomplish such a complexity? Then they had the element of multiple authors from different eras. I've already stated this. And you get a miracle. If we were to trace the idea of godly leadership, for example, we would find that all the teaching, whether by historical account, poetic hymns, prophetic warnings, gospel teachings by Jesus, apostolic definitions written by the letters and sent to the church, are all in perfect agreement with regard to leadership and everything else. It's nothing short of a divine miracle. Therefore, the necessary element to believe and understand Scripture, listen, is divine humility. Quote, At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Matthew eleven twenty five. 25. So if you're going to be in your own mind, in your own pride of ego, use a Freudian term, uh, we are... Not to be proud. We are to be humble as infants. If you think yourself to be intelligent, brilliant, you know, a scholar, that's, uh, that's against you. Not the study part. Not, not the pursuit of knowledge. That's not a strike against you. That's, that's for you when done with humility. But the problem is knowledge inflates, the Bible says. 1 Corinthians 8.1. You know, concerning things offered to idols, we all have knowledge. That's an isolated fact. Um, but that isolated fact inflates your mind. It puffs up your pride. And God says that he resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So when you stop thinking in your mind that you're brilliant, then you had a, of a shot at wisdom and truth. Is an earthly wisdom, James says in chapter 3, it's demonic. But there's a wisdom that comes from God. It comes from the God of heaven who gives to all and doesn't hold anything back to those who seek him in humility. That's what we're talking about here. We have to be humble even in understanding the name Elohim. Now, having considered the power and reliability of the Word of God, let us go on to learn about the reliability of God Himself through the study of His names. This one name. We understand names as designations by which we get the meaning of a thing. On the sixth day, God created man from the dust of the earth, and He breathed into him the breath of life, and he became a living soul. Now, the word man as a designation, Adam, it doesn't explain what I just read. It just, it, just, it just sets man aside, so to speak, um, by that name. 
It's, it's merely a designation. Every creature has been given a name and is set apart by that name. There are personal names and names that give some meaning to what we are, such as farmer, lawyer, baker, businessman, Indian chief, you know, father, son, husband, wife, daughter, you know, cousin, relational names. So it is with God as he gives self-disclosure to his person in the Bible. Every name given to describe God in a certain context. It's given a certain context, and first context mean much. Because they set the designation off in a certain direction, and it'll never deviate because God's never an error, and he never contradicts himself. So first context of anything in the Bible, and now we're looking at names, is very important. Everyone has a personal name. My name is Joseph. And in Hebrew from the Bible, it means increase or double. It doubles, it increases. The meaning of the word is to increase, but does that mean that I will increase? Well, I might, I might not. I mean, I'm not made by my name. My name is just a designation. If by the Spirit of God, who says, you know, some water, some plant, but God gives the increase, if by the grace of God, I am made to increase, then I will. Not because the name says so. That's just a designation. Personal name, Joseph. I have to understand. Don't, don't think you're, don't figure out your name and then go along and say, well, that's who I am. Well, maybe, maybe not. Unless God does it. God changes names. You're Peter. You know, you're Simon. I'm going to call you Peter because I'm going to turn you into a rock. See, you're just pebbles. Somebody puts a foundation on you, it flops. But on Peter, the rock, it's going to stand. It's a foundation strong. God promised he was going to do that, and he did it. According to Strong's Concordance, Elohim occurs over 2,500 times in the King James, uh, NASB, and I think ESV. When we see a capital G, small o, small d, that's Elohim. When we read Lord, capital L, small o-r-d, that's Adonai. That's masters, my masters. When combined with capital G, capital O, capital D, it's Jehovah. Rather than Lord, Lord, all caps and a cap and small o-r-d, which would be a little bit more confusing, Lord, Lord. Um, it's, it's actually Lord God, cap, all capitals Lord, and all caps God. That's uh, Adonai Jehovah. So that you, you understand. God, when it's capital G, small o, d, is Elohim. When it's all caps, it's Jehovah. And that's as far as the English translation, of course, goes. Before considering Elohim, we should first look at the word evil. It only appears as God's, all lowercase, plural, it's always in the plural, and it occurs 244 times in 215 verses, never designates the one true God, but only false gods, all lowercase. Give you some examples. Quote, who is like you among the gods, all lowercase, Lord, all caps. So who is among, who is like you among the Elam, Jehovah, Exodus 15, 11. 
Another one is, you shall have no Elam before me, Exodus 23. That's at the giving of the law. When referring to mere men, quote, you shall not revile Elam, nor curse the ruler of your people, Exodus 22, 28, referring to men as rulers. If you do return to the Lord, Exodus 1 Samuel 7, 3, if you do return to Jehovah, that's all caps, Lord, with all your heart, then put away the strange Elam, 1 Samuel 7, 3, false gods, every case, go through them all, go to Strong's, look up all the words for G-O-D-S, gods, it's always Elam, it's always false gods. Within the context, the term strange or properly foreign is meant to indicate someone unknown or unfamiliar, strange gods, strange Elam. False gods cannot be known. They're going to be strange or foreign because they're not living. They're fashioned by human artisans. That's the whole point. They have eyes to see and ears to hear, but they can't see and they can't hear. They have legs to walk, but they they can't walk. They're fake. They're phony. It is important to understand that the term Elam used as a name contains the word the word El of greatness. It implies power. And then Im, which is a plurality, but it's completely contrary to the name Elam. However, when Bible scholars speak of the name Elam, I'm not trying to be contrary or critical. I'm not, you know, a, a, a Hebrew scholar, and I don't pretend to be. But when you read the bulk of material out there and they refer to Elohim, they refer to one who is powerful and plural. Just a powerful, plural God. So what's the difference between Elam and Elohim? What's the distinguishing factor? There's, There's none when you look at those two terms. So if we look at the term O, O-H in Hebrew, we find the definition to mean it's a conjunction, which means if uh, or that. The best that we can get from this term in Hebrew is a conditional particle. If or by implication interject as a wish. You know. Um, but, you know, and I've read some scholars and they say well it it intensifies the power okay so it intensifies the power of god it makes him the powerful god which el shaddai does really well uh what's the purpose of the difference again between elohim and elam there's none there's none he's the most powerful and they're just powerful okay wow uh again i I don't want to really sound critical but um it's, it's not satisfying because I believe there's another alternative. God inspired men to use the word Elohim and he made that word for a purpose, not to just another form of Elam. So those two terms remain the same, Im and El, uh, and we understand God to be powerful. So when you look in the New Testament or you look at other verses, 
uh, as in Colossians 1.11, which is same God, different word because it's in Greek, or different term. Uh, and Paul says, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. We get it? We get it's all glorious, all might, power. We're referring to Luke, where he's talking about imparting ordinary men, his disciples, and it says he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. This was not normal power. He was, it, was, it was absolutely a power not known to men or their skills apart from the miracle-working God. Even in Psalm 33 and verse 6, it says, By the word of the Lord, same God, uh, the heavens were made. And that word there is Jehovah, which you know, we'll go into later, another podcast. But by the breath of his mouth, all their host, he gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Now, these verses from the New Testament uh, in Greek, uh, they're different than Elohim. Old Testament, New Testament, there's purposes for the two. They're not identical. Uh, And Elohim has a specific purpose. This is where we're going with this. And I want us to understand that that purpose that I'm talking about, uh, harp right back to 2 Peter, the word as we understand it, the, the facts when they become truth, when they are imparted into it, when they're given us in our heart, when we receive them by faith, through these, this epinosis, when we, when we get that in our hearts, it has a transforming power. What? The word, the word of God. The epinosis, the knowledge. What knowledge? God's knowledge which we find in the Bible. So this, this, these words, this word has significant power by God to transform our lives. Do we really want to change the words? I don't think we should. There was a time when the kings of the earth were Christian in name, at least, and those kings influenced by the Bible used the term, the divine we. We would rather that you left our presence. You know, absolute height of authority for a man to take that, that, uh, that name of, of the divine, thinking themselves to be like God, and they should say we. Men are not we. We're one person. God is three persons and one God. God gives this idea of plurality and unity uh, in the tabernacle. In Exodus 25 and verse 6, where it says, You shall make fitly clasps of gold and join the curtains to one another with the clasps so that the tag- tabernacle will be a unit. We understand that God is three persons in one God. And as in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, great verse, which says here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Here, O Israel, the Lord Jehovah, plural name, is our Elohim. I'm sorry. Here, O Israel, the Lord, single name, is our Elohim, 
plural name. The Lord, plural name, is one. Making that three in one. When looking at commentaries of those who explain the Elohim, you will find the strong plural God. And that is all you're going to find. All right, so let's look at, oh. In an ancient Hebrew dictionary by Jeff A. Benner, who did uh, some translating there, you find Allah, A-L-A-H in Hebrew, not A-L-L-A-H, it's Muslim, is a translation, is oath by definition. Something corroborated by a vow or a binding agreement, including the curse for violating the oath. So the O can be taken, O-H, as derived from Allah, A-L-A-H, which means uh, an oath by definition or a vow. Or it means to keep a covenant, a promise. Keep your promises. So, that could be the explanation that Elohim and makes it distinctly different from Elohim. The oath prefer, referred to in Psalm 110, verse 4, the Lord swore and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In Hebrews chapter 6, and verses 16 through 18, it says this, and I quote, For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. Verse 17, in the same way God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. An interesting statement on this covenant relationship in Elohim was made by St. Augustine, Augustine if you prefer, one of the most prominent of the early church leaders who lived in North Africa from 30, 35, 354 AD sorry, to 430 AD. The following statement is his. If God is love, then in God there must be a lover, a beloved, and the spirit of love. For there can be no love without a lover and a beloved. And if God is eternal, there must be an eternal lover and an eternal beloved and an eternal spirit of love, which unites the eternal lover to the eternal beloved in a bond of love which is eternal and indissoluble. The relationship in God in and with himself is one in which there is no breach. And here's the big sentence for me. From the beginning, God is Elohim in covenant union with himself forevermore. From the beginning, God is Elohim in covenant union with himself forevermore. Now, John Calvin was a reformer during that age of the Reformation when the gospel was returned in full power and in even better ways of how to interpret the word of God. You can study that. 
that they brought forth sola scriptura, that they, they learned that you don't uh, m- turn allegories into scripture. You, you take the word for what it is. All of that laid out. And who's a primary person that moved the reformers other than, no, none other than St. Augustine? Why is this portion of Elohim not readily taught? Why is the term O as an abbreviation but a conjunction not being used to understand and underscore that God makes an oath that he's a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping, faithful God? When we have O, which is a derivative of Allah, which means just that, to swear, to keep a covenant. Well, I I don't know the reasons. I I can't even assume. And the only thing I'm going to say is it's probably, at one level or another, spiritual warfare. Why do I say that? Well, what was it that the devil said to Eve in the Garden of Eden? What caused this great catastrophe on humanity? He asked the question, God, has God really said you shall not eat from the tree of the garden? So in that question, he questions the truthfulness of God. I mean, if the devil's going to ruin, he has ruined the race. How's, how did he do it? By accusing God. By accusing God of being unfaithful, untruthful, untrustworthy, uh, um, one who breaks his promises. What's the second thing he said? You certainly will not die. So he goes from questioning to outright accusation that God is a liar. Now, if God did that in the garden and ruined the race, then how? what, what would make us think that he wouldn't attack the name of God, which is laid out right from the beginning, the very first verse? In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, Elohim, the strong plurality and a unity, triune God and Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the great we, the strong, faithful, promise-keeping, covenant-keeping gods, persons. This name has been attacked from the beginning just the way God has from the beginning been attacked. So let's get this idea in our mind that God is not simply powerful. What part of powerful changes us into what we need to be? What what part of that? I mean, sure, we, we would be fearful, and fearful is the beginning of wisdom. Let me be straight. Let me be honest. Let me be open about all of this. Of course, in the power of God, there's a deterrent for evil. But what is it that draws us to the cross? What is it that draws us to to Christ? What is it that causes us to take God at his word, a very word that becomes knowledge to us, an epinosis, that can transform us by the imparting of the divine nature. Is it not his truthfulness? Is it not his faithfulness? Is it not 
that he keeps his covenant and his promises and he can be relied on? Like we, we look at Peter, the rock. What, what made him a rock? Well, it was the power of God. It was the promises of God. It was the Old Testament fulfilled in the New. It was epinosis that transforms people's minds and their hearts and their wills and their emotions, and it makes them in what they need to be. It makes them not only trust, but it makes them obey. God's promises do that, and it begins with Elohim. You can take that to the bank. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I give you praise and honor and glory because you're a trustworthy God. You're not a God who's a liar by accusation of the devil. You're not a God who can't be trusted. You're not God who says one thing and doesn't. No, that's, that's what sinful men do. That's what sinful demons do. That is not what Elohim does. <laughs> thank you, Lord. That you, uh, you promised to send your son and you did. I give you all the honor and the praise, Lord Jesus, who is the eternal son, who is the eternal God, made flesh, that you put on humanity, you lived for 30 years as a man, you, uh, you went shoulder to shoulder with sinful men, you put up you had patience, you had loving kindness for all those years. When the side of you wants to destroy evil, wherever it is. And you went to the cross. There was no justice for you, Lord. When a, a heart of infinite, perfect love for the Father, in an eternal, once eternal state, it only beaded with love for the Father and the Holy Spirit. And in that unity and in that trinity, there was only love and righteousness and holiness and, and justice. And then you created and you set out to reveal who you are. <laughs> and you couldn't have revealed it better. And in living out that 33-some years and doing what you said you would do and you went to the cross and you died, you suffered and you were resurrected from the dead. Lord, take this word and impart it in the hearts and in the minds of the hearers of this episode and allow people to see the Elohim who can be trusted. I ask not for their sakes only, but for your sake, for the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen.